0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954, when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992, when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit, ahead of the 91 FA Cup final, quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. his peak through the mid-80s, Everton captain Kevin Ratcliffe was one of Europe's finest centre-halves, the young leader of a supremely talented group of kids who either came through the Goodison ranks or were recruited from the lower leagues and took a while to get going in the early years of Howard Kendall's eventual hugely successful first tenure as Everton manager. Whenever there was or is a conversation about the best centre-halves in the British game in that decade, Liverpool's Hanson and Laurenson are always there, and rightly so. And in the latter part of the decade, you'd throw Paul McGrath into that conversation. Well, because you just have to, because for a man with no knees, he was incredible. But for older Evertonians, and for me, which is why I was so keen to interview him, Kevin Ratcliffe, at his peak, is easily in that elite category. His positional sense was exceptional. He was tough in an era when centre-halves had to be tough. And for Pacey's central defenders, off the top of my head, only the young Des Walker at Forest could match him in that decade. I make it clear in this interview, though Kevin is a little more humble about it, that if Heisel didn't happen, that mid-80s Everton team wins the European Cup, and more than once. If you look at the teams that contested the '86 final in Seville, Stau and Barcelona, neither were great European sides at that time, and Arrigo Sacchi's legendary Milan side of the late 80s were yet to emerge The man you're about to hear, I've no doubt, would have followed the likes of Charlton, Hughes, McGovern, Thompson, Mortimer and Souness in getting his hands on the big ears of the European Cup at a time when English clubs were dominating European football's biggest competition. I remembered Kevin's career very clearly because I rated him so highly as a player, but I had a real blind spot when it came to what I always felt was a great career that came to a rather curious and premature end. Both Simon Hart's excellent book on 80s-era Everton. Here we go. And this interview with the man who led Everton to two league titles, a European Cup, Winners' Cup and the FA Cup. And hey, if Guardiola counts the Community Shield as a trophy, let's count Charity Shields here because Kevin lifted that three times and shared it once. So, That's a lot of silverware and really should have been more. I'm off on a tangent here anyway. This interview, my point is, this interview made clear to me why Kevin's career had petered out, not suddenly, but over a period of increasingly quiet years. Here's Kevin Ratcliffe. You're born in North Wales to an Evertonian family. In your mid-teens, you were playing for Wales school boys. I knew that you'd had a trial at Manchester City, who were a fairly strong team at the time. What I didn't know from reading up about you is that you'd spent some time at Spurs as a kid.
1: Around about the same time as I went to Manchester City, it was all in that year, really. And I just remember going down. I think I went with a, a lad from Cardiff who was in the international... Under-15s with me, um, a lad called Tarki Mikhailov. And he'd signed for them. I think he ended up back at Cardiff. I think he got released. I'm not sure if he had an apprentice. But Mark Kendall was there, a lad called Terry Boyle, uh, along with Glenn Hoddle, Neil McNabb. who were all playing for the reserves in them days. And I travelled with the reserves to watch a reserve match. I can't remember who it was against. It was a non-league side. I spent about a week down there. Uh, that was long enough for me, really, to decide it wasn't for me.
0: Was yeah. it the fact that you didn't fancy playing in London? Was it just too far from home?
1: you got to get a feel for the place. I never got a feel, I must admit. I never did, just didn't feel right for me. I was most probably out of my comfort zone, as in, you know, you're away from home. In them days, it might have took you six to eight hours to get home. And to be fair, the only reason I went down there, that I got enticed, was because Wilf Dixon was the first team coach. And I thought, you know, that, uh, you know, being an Evertonian, you know, about Wilf Dixon being Harry Kattrick's assistant and coach. So that was one of the reasons when I, why I went down there, but I never actually met the fella.
0: In the end, it comes down to a choice between signing for Everton or Chester. Your dad was keen on you making the move to Chester because, understandably, he thought opportunities would be greater there. You, though, yeah. chose Everton, your sign as an apprentice in uh, '77. Mm-hmm. Was it difficult for you as a teenager to go against your, your dad's judgment at such a young age?
1: Yeah, I think against my, myself as well because, you know, I was well looked after at Chester. You know, being the manager, Ken Roberts, Cliff Sear, the youth team coach, thought a lot of us. Uh, as they did, a lot of the youngsters there and, you know, made you feel welcome and you, you didn't feel anything mm, that you weren't special. You know, they they made you feel as if you were wanted. Um, And that wasn't just for me, but most of the players that was there, I I would imagine that uh, they would all agree with us. They were all felt wanted. And uh, the opportunity maybe to get into the first team in your first or second year, being at the club as an apprentice. I I think that enticed me. But when you go to Everton, you see the facilities and I just felt a home. You know, even though I was a supporter of the club, I thought it was for me. No way did I think that I was going to go there and play in the first team and, and, and be captain and win things that was far from my mind at the time
0: a man that you've had a long association with is one of the coaches you encounter early on at Everton Colin Harvey and his his will to win is something that comes through from interviews I've read where you're talking about those early days at Everton what were your early impressions of Colin and what impact did he have on your career
1: well the thing is with Colin he had high standards and he you know that the one thing if you fell below them standards what he thought you couldn't achieve he'd be on you like a ton of bricks and that was most weeks <laughs> uh with Colin <laughs> um you know he, he he wasn't the happiest of people most mornings <laughs>
0: um
1: and uh it, it was like treading on eggshells a lot of the times but a lot I enjoyed it you know what I got from it was that you know that If you got picked to go on Colin's side in a five-a-side or a possession, you knew you weren't going to lose. You were going to be on the better side uh, because that's what he was about. It was about winning for him. Hey, tough times, but good times.
0: In your early years at Everton, the club is well-stocked for centre-halves. It's hard to think of a a first-division club at the time who had more centre-halves than than Everton. You've got Mick Lyons, the long-standing skipper. You've got Billy Wright, Mark Higgins, they're both a little older than you. Coming through, did you consider you might have to settle for playing at left-back in order to make your name at Everton?
1: No. Never even seen myself at a left-back. It was a, a, the club that decided they wanted to try me there and play me there. So I played a few games for the reserves. But I made my debut for Everton as a centre-back. You know, and That's always been my position. Uh, looking at the centre-backs there, I didn't see it that way. I mean, I I still thought I had time on my side. And how many of them players that were there then, with the likes of Roger Kenyon, Davy Jones, would be there, you know, in three years' time, two years' time? Obviously, other players that were coming in. I I remember Tommy Caton coming in uh, as a youngster and looking at the club. I think I was about 19. And Tommy was a a schoolboy looking for a club. And that was one of the reasons that he never signed because he looked at all the centre-halves in front of him because I believe he was an Evertonian. I'm not quite sure. But, But Tommy Caton, I think, obviously, then went on and played for Manchester City.
0: There's a brilliant nucleus of young players coming through Everton at the same time. And more over the coming years will be brought in from the lower leagues. When you're coming through, you've got Gary Stevens, you've got Brian Burrows, Steve McMahon, you've got Billy Wright, Paul Lodge, Kevin Richardson.
1: Well, you, you know, you've mentioned a few there. Uh, you've missed out a few. <laughs> OK. Uh, you, you've missed out Davey Jones, you know, Neil Robinson, players like that that were, that had come through the system, you know, and, and still were in their early 20s. I think Dave Jones was about 22, 23 when he moved on to Coventry. Um, Neil Robinson went on to play for, for Swansea that got promoted and played in the what is now the, the premiership of the First Division, the old First Division. You, you know, the thing is with Brian Burroughs, Steve McMahon and Billy Wright, they never served really. and Only Stevie Mack served part of an apprenticeship. But the other two were amateurs that used to come in. So on a Tuesday, they'd always arrive late because they picked up the doll. I think they got a little bit of expenses, but nothing to what we were getting as an apprentice. And as an apprentice, we weren't well paid. We'd only get them £15 a week, something like that. I think it went up to £16 or £20 when you were 17. You know, you, you did seem to think that if you were good enough, you were going to get a chance. You know, Paul Lodge coming through, myself. Pat Hurd, who went on to play for Aston Villa and, and get a U- European Cup winner's medal. You know, the, the likes of him, Joe McBride. You know, it, it was it was tough, but you still felt you could get, have a chance. And it, it was up to you then if you had that chance.
0: The club hadn't won anything since 1970. You would have been aware of that, obviously, because you're an Everton yeah. fan. But as a young player, as a young professional, did that affect you in any way? Was that pressure on no. you?
1: No, not at all. The only pressure was to be good enough, really, and the standards that were were met, really. You had to keep to them standards. You knew it was going to be tough, but you just needed that break. It's like anything; you've got you've got to have that luck.
0: You make your debut for Gordon Lee's team in March 1980. As you mentioned a few minutes ago, John Gidman falls ill. You step in at Old Trafford up against uh, Joe Jordan. I think it's a a nil-nil. Did you feel ready at that point for the first team?
1: Yeah, I I think I'd missed out a couple of weeks before on a trip to Norwich. Um, I can't remember when that was. We went to Norwich and I actually thought I was going to get on the bench. So when you get on the bench, you've got a good chance of getting on the pitch, if you know what I mean. Yeah, even though there's only one sub, but I was overlooked. I wasn't even on the bench. That was maybe the biggest kick that I got. That I travelled all the way to Norwich and never really got seen as um, you know. That, well, I, where I thought I was going to be part of the squad, you know, of, of the first team starting twelve. Really, I wasn't even in the twelve. I was like thirteenth man, and in them days, you you missed out on that. So I was I was more disappointed in that in not actually getting the subs bench than actually started. Um, but when I did start, like say against Manchester United, there was a complete surprise because, you know, nobody expects somebody to get ill and then a change about and the way that he's done it, actually playing Billy Wright at right back and me at centre back. Then, you know, that, that was something that, you know, just gets thrown upon you as a manager, I suppose. So I don't think the manager had time to maybe go and get somebody else in.
0: Your second game is a huge game. About a month later, you play in the uh, FA Cup semi-final replay against West Ham. That's at Ellen Road. Brian Kidd had been sent off in the first game. Again, you're in at centre-back. Everton lose 2-1. There's a moment where Mick Lyons, your, your captain, who seems to be one of the most unfortunate big club captains, I think, in English football history, given the amount of near misses that Everton experienced in the 70s. He tells you after the game, he's in tears, but he tells you, even though it's only your second game, you'll have more yeah. chances. As a young professional, when you lose a game of that magnitude, does a defeat in such a big game register in the same way it does once you're you know, well into your career?
1: Well, first and foremost, in them days, if you lost out on a semifinal, you lost out on a place and playing at Wembley, which was a big thing for players in them days. You know, to go and play at Wembley meant you were in a final of some sort. Um, so that was the biggest disappointment, that you're not going to Wembley. Little did I know that what, when Mick was saying that, that I, were, I was going to get more opportunities. I don't think he realised that I'd already played at Wembley for the schoolboys. Yeah, it's, it's a nice little bit of a, a touch him, especially when you're seeing experienced players in the changing room. A little bit more disappointed than I am. you, know, you got to realise it was my second game, so I'm feeling a bit elated rather than disappointed that I've been actually selected. Uh, And I've got like a a bonus coming to me that I've never ever experienced before. I think it was about £750 appearance money for playing in the semi-final when I was only on £150 a week. So when you calculate that being like four times what you're earning, then that is uh, a massive thing for you as a youngster. Get that amount of uh, extra money coming the next payday. It would have been double that if we'd actually gone through so the incentive in them days was to win games and be rewarded for winning games. You know, £750 was a lot more than what the players were earning in them days as well. I think the maximum wage at Everton would have been about £400, £500 a week in them days. And that would be somebody like Bob Latchford, maybe on about 400 or or whatever.
0: Eighty eighty one, you make over 20 appearances under Gordon Lee. It's a very tough year for Everton. Reading up a bit on Gordon Lee, while I do remember him, What's clear from a few recollections of those of you who played under him is he was something of an unusual character because every one of his former players seems to have a funny Gordon Lee story.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a, well, he was something, something different. And, you know, when he's your first manager, you know, you, you're just wondering, is everybody like this? He had this knack of turning the subject, what you went in to see him about, completely around to sort of like, you know, what have I come in here for? Forgotten already. You know, I'm not 60 plus and got a little bit of Alzheimer's. What have, what have I come in here for? I can't remember now. He had a great knack of that. But, you know, and I think if you speak to somebody like Graham Sharp as well, and, and even Steve McMahon, they will tell you that he, he was the one that gave him the chance and give me the chance. I think that was his biggest problem is he knew he had to change Everton Football Club. Players were coming to the end of their careers and the new blood coming through especially knowing how good the youth system was at Everton and what it proved to be how good, you know, likes of me, likes of Steve McMahon. Pat Hurd was coming through as well, or just a little bit older than us, Joe McBride. He wanted to build the team around these players. And when you've got at Hartford in his late 20s, Mickey Lyons in his 30s, people were coming to the end of their careers, and it was a bit of a transformation of Everton Football Club. But the biggest thing for Gordon was that he lost his, his right-hand man, uh, Steve Burtonshaw. Um, when he, I think he went to Spurs or somewhere like that. I'm not quite sure.
0: Might have been but, Arsenal, but Eric Harrison... Arsenal,
1: sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Eric Harrison took over. And to be fair, it, it went downhill from there. Yeah, it was a bit disappointing in the fact that you uh, he, he just lost something a little bit special in Steve. Steve was a great coach. I'm not saying the other guys weren't, but he just held this awe about him that a lot of players respected. I think when Eric Harrison come in and you're dealing with people like Brian Kidd, Bob Latchford, Mickey Lyons. He, he was a tough guy, was Eric. It, it didn't really sort of rub off with the older pros, shall I say, as much as maybe the youngsters that actually he brought through when he went to Man United.
0: During eighty you're moving up and down between the first team and the reserves. How important mm. was it that in those days... Young reserve team players were often playing alongside vastly more experienced colleagues who are either coming back from injury or they might have lost their first team places. You're coming up against experienced opposition. That has been lost now.
1: Yeah, it's been lost now. You know, in that season, me dropping down into the reserves, I was most probably one of the more experienced reserve team players. It was literally before that, when I was about 17, 18, playing reserve team football, and you were playing with the likes of Terry D'Addacott. Uh, you know, all them type of George Telfer, Mick Buckley, Roger Kenyon, especially in my position, uh, and learning your trade through them. You know, it's a miss for all clubs. It's not just for Everton, but I think for all clubs, that, you know, you don't get that now.
0: The club go on another long run in the FA Cup. You get to the quarterfinals, a replay against Manchester City. You you clash with Tommy Hutchinson and you're sent off. Would FA Cup success have been enough to save Gordon Lee that season?
1: Um yeah, I suppose you could be quite right, really, but i I just felt that since the year before he, he always seemed to be under a little bit of pressure uh did Gordon um things weren't quite right, but he, he he- wasn't far off being quite successful there you know that that's prior to when I broke in actually in around about seventy seven i I can't remember when Gordon actually come in he came in about seventy seven didn't he yeah, after Bingham, I think. Yeah, he did. I think it was after, I think he took, did did he take uh, the League Cup team? He never actually played the semi-final, but I think he he was manager in the final. And that was regarded as Billy Bingham's side rather than Gordon Lee's side. But I think he had good opportunities in that little space then when he, he most probably had the players at the prime, you know, around about 77 to 80 I think he had some good players there that you know could have gone on and and, and done better at the club. You know, the likes of Mick Pedic. I think even under Bingham, they were they were close to winning stuff. You know, when you got players like Mick Pedic, Martin Dobson, Bob Latchford, and Dave Thomas, and that, you, you're going to be close to something. But it just wasn't something missing. I don't know what it was, but there was just something missing. And then when Gordon took over, he was trying to find that. And I've just actually changes the style a little bit, I think, because obviously, uh, the one thing I could remember, is Duncan McKenzie wasn't his favourite. He didn't like superstars in the team. He always said that he'd rather have 11 McLions than 11 Duncan McKenzie's in his side.
0: Howard Kendall arrives in the summer of 81, long held to be one of the best, if not the best player to never play for England. He arrives as player manager, Is Background was impressive. Apart from his playing career, I mean, towards the end, he'd helped Stoke get promotion in '79. He moves to Blackburn rather than go into Division One with Stoke. Player manager, two seasons, almost gets Blackburn up to Division One. Before we come to him as a manager, what was it like to play with him at that late stage of his playing career?
1: Oh, you, you got to remember, he never came in as a player. He, he came in as a manager, and I, I think it was because things weren't going quite well that Mick his assistant manager, persuaded him to uh, get a player's contract and, and play and help the youngsters through the team, you know, like Sir Kevin Richardson, you know, Steve McMahon as well, uh, who he we later f- fell out with, myself, and that just to see what it was, you know, help us on the pitch, not just on the training ground, but on the pitch as well. And that, I, I don't know when that actually happened, but look, when we had the ball, Howard Kendall was great, even in training. He was fantastic, never give the ball away. But you didn't want to play in a side that when Howard Kendall didn't have the ball. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was no use, no ornament. <laughs> now. But when he had the ball, he was fantastic. He was unbelievable. We knew that. We knew that in training. You know, he, he never gave the ball away. His vision was as good as what you've seen. And, you, you know, when you look back and you're thinking, oh yeah. He's he's well past it. You know, good players don't lose it. They've still got the vision and know what they want to do. Sometimes they can't execute what they want to do, but he still could do that. He still could do it. So once again, he's come in and. But I think the brainwave about the big transformation with with Howard was installing Colin Harvey as his first team coach,
0: which and, didn't um, happen for a couple of seasons.
1: Yeah, um, I'm not too really sure when it happened. It was round about the eighty. Three season was it Eighty two, eighty three, something like that I'm not sure exactly it was I'll tell you when it was it was after the Coventry game in the League Cup that would be about 83 yeah going into
0: 84 He he's made those seven signings in the summer of 81 which turn out to be yeah. a bit of a full storm except for Neville Southall I mean I think if you've signed seven players and one of them turns out to be as great as Neville Southall then you're excused the other six
1: well, he gets um, forgotten a little bit, doesn't <laughs> it? Does.
0: It took you some time, maybe 18 months or so, to convince the new manager to try you at centre-back. Am I right in saying he tried to take you to Blackburn when he was there?
1: Yeah, he did. He did. Um, he, he kept telling me that. Don't know why. <laughs> but he, um, he seemed to have a little bit of doubt about me playing centre-back. Now, I don't know if that was because of my height, because I'm not the tallest of centre-backs. Or was it that he felt that if I did play, that I couldn't play with Billy Wright, but the only person I could play with was with a big centre-half in the likes of Mark Higgins. But Mark Higgins being a left-footer, me being a left-footer, unheard of.
0: I read that, but I was curious about that because you get so many pairings where both central defenders are right-footed. What's the big deal about both of you being left-footed, just out of interest?
1: I kept telling him that. Right. (laughs) Right. What's the difference of being two right-footers and two left-footers? Two right-footers seem to get away with it, or what? Or is it you're not quite sure? But, you know, I worked the treat with with Iggy. I still say to this day, if he hadn't picked up that injury, we wouldn't have bought maybe Dave Watson, because we'd already got Derek Mountfield. It's one of them that, uh, you know, you get given the chance. I mean, I was getting given chances to play at centre-back, but he kept sort of leaving me out and and putting um, Billy Wright back in. So yeah, it was it was a bit disappointing time for me because I was getting a little bit fed up really of being a scapegoat.
0: You're being linked at the time with moves to Ipswich and Stoke.
1: Yeah, and I didn't really know about them myself. You know, it's, it was you know you got to realise in them days the press wasn't as wide open as it is now where it is that things are leaked because of agents can leak them. You know, if things were getting leaked at football clubs. It was either the manager or it was either the player. I had no idea that. They were after me until maybe after an event or something, I think at the end of the season, that Howard approached me, that Stoke had come in for me and he told them where to go. But that's because I was playing. I was playing regularly. We we were getting a little bit of success.
0: And all those centre-halves have started to be cleared away. I mean, Mick Lyons has moved to Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, Billy Wright's weight issues See him stripped to the captaincy and moved on. So it's Ewan Higgins at centre-back. First two seasons under Howard Kendall, you finish eighth, then seventh. I'm going to tell you when I first noted that your Everton team might be something to look out for, 83 FA Cup quarter final at Old Trafford, it was on the big match that night. And I think a lot of people that night would have been watching that game and thought to themselves, okay, something might be happening at Everton because mm. that United side was the most expensive in the country, but you pushed them all the way.
1: Yeah, was that a Lou Macari goal?
0: Was it Macari or Stapleton? I think Macari had come on and
1: Stapleton mm, got the winner. Yeah. Look, he, he was still finding his team, Howard, at that point as well. But we pushed them as, as close as they'd ever been, I think. And like you say, they were, I, I think they were above us then in where they were finishing in the league, what they were about to achieve. And I think with us going a little bit quicker than them for a lot less money, I think put them back. A few years. Because that that game, yeah, I remember the game. Do you know what? We had this attitude. I think we had one of our rare meetings before the game about how we were going to deal with them, what Howard wanted us to, to do. And we were so relaxed in the meeting. And all I can remember about the meeting was that Dave Johnson, this experienced player we'd bought from Liverpool, was sat in there with a suit on and the most ridiculous pair of socks that I've ever seen. <laughs> and I don't think I heard a word or or recognised a word that Howard had said in the team meeting, because at the end of the team meeting, he said to me, has anybody got anything to say? And he looked at me, most probably knowing that I hadn't been taking a blind bit of notice, and said, what do you think, Rats? And I says, do such and such socks go with a blue suit? <laughs> and he just looked and went and shook his head. You know, sometimes don't want to sort of overplay this of being so relaxed or not taking any notice of what the manager's saying, but I think that was us as a bunch of players coming through. Dave Johnson was a big part, you know, of that. I know he wasn't successful in his second spell at Everton, but he's so integral about the the way that we were going and the way that we're going forward. And he used to clash with Howard every trip. If we went away on pre-season tour or we had a little bit of a break, the two of them would be at loggerheads, battering each other, you know, having a go at each other. And, and Dave had a, a very high opinion of football, you know, and how it was to be played. Yeah, it, the two of them, it was quite funny, you know, from being so young and seeing this experienced player battling it out with Howard.
0: Was it that David Johnson felt things needed to be done in a different way?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, I can't remember exactly what they were about, but God, they used to clash. They used to clash. I don't know where. I don't know why. Uh, but it was so funny looking from the outside in on that, being on the inside, but on the outside of their, you know, sort of little tantrums with each other.
0: <laughs> Before we cover the mid-80s glory period, I just want to establish what the football, what it was like out on the pitch in this era, because you had a reputation for being tough, being able to look after yourself. Yeah. There's... A thing about the hard man era being the 60s and the 70s, but there was still a fair amount of naughtiness in the 80s. I mean, you still had the likes of S, Case, Harford, Whitehurst knocking around. You were still all getting stuck in and on some awful pitches. Were you someone who had to learn how to look after himself or did you already have that in your game?
1: I think, you know, to be successful, you've got to have a nasty streak in you. Um, we were lucky that we had a few nasty streaks in quite a few of the players, you know, and that, and that was against each other sometimes in training. You know, the competitiveness in training to the competitiveness not on, on the pitch, you know, the it it was tough. You know, you had to keep your eye on the ball to the last minute because it might take a little bit of a bounce here or there. And then if you did miss control it, you know, you, you could have six studs raining in on you. But that—that's the way the game was played then, and I think you—you're saying there's more tough again. There's no tough guys now because you don't tattle, you can't tattle. You know, you don't need that tough guy. You don't need that enforcer in midfield or at the back. You know, that's taken away the leadership because you don't get many leaders in the game, and that's one of the reasons. Um, you don't need them type of players, I should imagine, anymore.
0: The 83-84 season, it's a a famous season, a a season of two halves. We touched on Colin Harvey earlier getting promoted to first-team coach. Six wins in 21 league games have Everton struggling in the table. You touched on a game with Coventry earlier. There are two important games with Coventry inside a a couple of months in late 83. First one, early November, League Cup third-round tie at Goodison. Mm. 9,000 yeah. fans, you're trailing by a single goal. You win in the end, but there's a pivotal point in that game with the second-half introduction of Peter Reid.
1: Yeah, wasn't a regular, and let's like say, thrown in on that game. Um, and most probably Howard's last draw. You know, because if he don't win this game or come away with results, I think he's gone in the morning. And Peter Reid with the sub, you know, he's the only sub because there was only one sub then. He comes on, we score a goal within five minutes and then we get one right at the deck, you know, against um, a bang average Coventry side who had the likes of Sam Allardyce in there at centre-back. Colin got promoted the next morning. We We signed Andy Gray on the Thursday.
0: Yeah, and and we'll come to the impact that Peter Reid and Andy Gray have on the team uh, shortly because I think those two, the impact they have is is incredible on, on the existing yeah, team there. Yeah,
1: it is, but I, th- I think that Howard wasn't, he didn't know what his best midfield was. If you look at the back four, I don't think the back four changed too much. You know, me and Iggy, um, I think Derek might have played first game of the season against Stoke City because I was ill. Oh no, I was suspended actually. Uh, I got, I was suspended, but I did get hill as well. So I wouldn't have played anyway. But I think, you know, the likes of John Bailey and I think Gary Stevens was playing quite regular right back. Yeah. So, you know, the back four never really changed other than Derek coming in instead of Iggy when he got injured, which wasn't too long after that game, I don't think. You know, I think it was around about December. But it was the midfield area that he wasn't quite sure on. He was chopping and changing up front with Sharpie, Adrian, and Dave Johnson until he left. So it was that little bit of midfield area. So, you know, you, you Kevin Richardson would be coming in and playing. Alan Harper would be coming in and playing in there. And like I say, he wasn't quite sure. And then on the right hand side, he's got an up and coming fantastic player in Trevor Stephen, yeah. but not quite ready. Alan Irvine, who then I think after Christmas he goes and brings Terry Curran in on loan, who he later signed. Like you say, there's a lot of things to think about, but you just couldn't get that pairing in midfield quite right. And I think bringing in Peter, I think dropping Adrian Heath because he was struggling scoring goals and dropping him into midfield uh, and playing him and Peter alongside each other just brought a little bit more energy to the side.
0: The second game against Coventry, that's the famous one. That's on New Year's Eve. Fans want the manager out. Kendall out, painted on his garage doors. The only parallel that I can think of where a manager got that much heat maybe from his own fans or a small section of his own fans was Ferguson in his early years at United. Very similar situations. Did you think at that time that the manager could survive?
1: I I can't recall that. Can't really remember it, to be fair. I I, I thought the turning like I say, the big turning point was that Coventry game. Andy Gray coming in, I think we played Forrest on the Saturday, Drew against Forrest, but there was a, a massive improvement from the players. Uh, considering there was only 9,000 there a couple of days before, I think we showed that we, we had the appetite for a fight.
0: During yeah. this time, Mark Higgins picks up an injury that initially yeah. forces him to retire before making a brief comeback with Man United. So at just 23, you take over as captain. Were you a natural leader?
1: I think I captained the youth teams and um reserves you know I think the big one was like Steve McMahon because I remember Steve being captain as well it was like a bit shared I think between the two of us so uh, when he gave it to me yeah it was a bit of a surprise um because obviously you look at the other players within the group and um there's a lot more experienced players than me but when you think about it it was pre sort of Andy Gray Peter Reid era before they actually come into the side and maybe I was more of a regular than them at the time if Andy Gray was ever a regular (laughs) (laughs) Uh, don't tell him that (laughs) he won't like it Um, I think think you
0: you make a fair point though there that's a fair point
1: but that yeah you know that Peter had only just got into the side you know like I said that November he then started playing regular after that Coventry game in November in the the League Cup but prior to that like I said we've been playing together me and Iggy for the whole of that season so maybe you know if it was maybe six months down the line then the captain's armband might have gone somewhere else but obviously the experience I had had being as a captain for Everton in some sort of capacity led me in, in good stead
0: For me, my recollection of this season is it's the season 83-84 when that great team really begins to take shape because there's been a battle for individual places that's been going on for a year or two. Those battles are being sorted out. Southall becomes the number one over Jim Arnold and Neville Southall's form for six years, six, seven years, if he was English, as great a goalkeeper as Peter Shilton was, Peter Shilton ends up with only half the caps he he ends up getting because... The rise of Southall was incredible. You've got Reed coming in for Andy King. I think Sharp finally topples David Johnson. Trevor Stevens steps in and wins that battle with Alan Irvine. Gary Stevens with Brian Burrows. So that team is really now gathering momentum. I want to ask you about the famous moment when Kevin Brock inadvertently sets up Adrian Heath for a, a late League Cup equaliser at Oxford United in January '84. Is too much made of that moment because I was looking at your run of form going into that game. And to be fair, you'd only lost two of your last 11. You know, the, the, the form was building at Everton.
1: Yeah, there's always a banana skin though, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, Adrian did what he's good at. Anticipates where the ball's going to go or, or makes players do what he wanted them to do with the ball. Uh, and he was great at that. He was very good at reading where the centre half was going to head it or chest it or pass it. And he'd intercept it and bang. He's away. Look, we we had the great belief in ourselves. I think the biggest thing for us after that Coventry game, then after the Christmas, was the way the lads were gelling together, the way that we were bonding, and the banter that we were having, and we were taking that into matches. A unity altogether. We just got stronger and stronger. It was like as if you know, if he's not going to be playing, well, I'm going to be doing a little bit extra for him you weren't really having a go with him because he wasn't playing well, then um, we'd try and help each other out. Uh, and sometimes it's not always like that in football. It's, you know, it can be quite selfish sometimes, or, as long as I'm all right, Jack, but you've got to remember it's a team game. We were finally grasping what it was all about, I think, you know, where we were getting the experience in the side and we were also getting the the youthfulness and uh, people who had been there for quite a while and, and making their claim. And, and people, you know, that I was relatively young along with Sharpie and Adrian Heath, but we also had the likes of Gary Stevens and Kevin Richardson coming through. But the good thing about it was, I, I think, when I look back now, because now we're all turning 60, and how many of us are turning 60 this year? You know, just after August, I think there's maybe half the team have turned 60. You know, that Alan Harper, Kevin, me, myself, Sharpie, Kev Sheedy was last year. So, you know, there's quite a few of us that... um of it that milestone really and we we did it all together so maybe that was one of the reasons that we're all from the same age a lot ever- of us anyway
0: Everton you go to Wembley for the first ever League Cup final it's the first ever League Cup final to be televised live it's the first of 10 trips to Wembley over the next five years for the club that handball by Alan Hansen that gets picked up by VAR nowadays
1: Oh, definitely. There's quite a few things that get picked up by VAR, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) You know, not just that, but things going on off the ball as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's part and parcel. You you know, if you want to go on about it all night, we'll talk about all sorts of decisions not going for us and decisions that have gone for us as well. It was one of them games that I thought we were the better side over 90 minutes, but put us there with the best team in the country. I think we had that belief after that game that we could, you know, we could hold our own with them, even though we lost the, the replay. We we felt that we could hold our own with them and huh, well, could we go as far as competing with them in the league? But we also knew there was a couple of other contenders, you know, Man United fighting for that, which we seem to brush aside time and time again, other than the FA Cup final. But every time we played them, I think we give them a, a right good game and, and most probably come out, you know, nine times out of 10 winners.
0: A couple of weeks after the League Cup uh, replay defeat, Adrian Heath uh, scores at Highbury to beat Southampton in the FA Cup semi finals. There's a funny story here that I'd never heard before. And this show is called When Shorts Were Short. And so I think it's apt that this story concerns your first half performance. You attribute it, the, the poor first half performance, down to your shorts being too short, and you have to swap them at half time with Peter Reed.
1: I didn't have to swap them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were thrown at me. Um, right. When I put them on, Reedy was so. When I turned around and said to Reedy, he just took his straight away, took his shorts off and threw them at me and said, "Well, there are. Go on. You've got no excuses now." But looked at in them days it was like the kits weren't great to put it this way, and it was a scramble. So you, you know, people used to say, oh, you used to get there early before the match, didn't you?" You're trying to get the best bit of kit. You know, trying to get the best strap, the best pair of shorts. The only thing you didn't dictate was what number you were wearing on your back. You know, but more often than not, if I was playing, I was number four. So, yeah, that was all right. But the the, the shorts were getting smaller and smaller because the amount of times they, they go in the tumble dryer. because you only get the one pair of shorts for the year. And obviously some get ripped, some are get thrown away. And I don't think, you know, the, the likes of whoever we were with in them days, Umbro or Lecox Sportif, weren't forthcoming with too much gear for you. But the sizes of the shorts were getting, even though they were maybe a 34 or a 36, they were about a 28 by the end of the season, by the time they'd gone through the tumble dryer 40-odd times of the season. And with it being towards the end of the season, that was 40-plus times it would already been in that tumble dryer. And they were getting shorter and shorter. Uh, The length of them were getting shorter and shorter as well. So there was about three or four shorts, and I think there was me, Sharpie, Reedy, And if Andy Gray could get a pair, he'd try and get a pair as well, if if he was playing. (laughs) Um, So, obviously, that day I didn't get them. I weren't happy before the game, you know, that I haven't got my my favourite pair of shorts on.
0: You go on to win the final against Watford. You become the youngest captain since uh, Bobby Moore in 64 to lift the FA Cup. Mm -hmm. Do you, at that point, think this is it? This is the start of something? Did you anticipate what was coming?
1: No, not at all. Uh, I'll I'll always say this, that most of the time, I think anybody can win the FA Cup. You know, you get the right draw, you miss the big boys, then you've got an opportunity to get to a final. That was certainly the case, I think. In a way, you've still got to get there. You've still got to uh, do it. But, you know, if you look back over the years at some of the teams that have actually got there, I've had an opportunity of getting there. I think there was one semi-final one year, Cardiff against Barnsley. I think it was. Two championship teams. Yeah. In the semi-final, I think, Car- well, Cardiff won because they played Portsmouth in the final. Portsmouth. <laughs> so, you know, like I say, that most clubs uh, can have a chance of getting to the FA Cup final. But, uh, you know, the the one thing is you're getting a taste of what it's like to be winning. So you're, you're getting on that sort of a run.
0: 84-85, a huge year in Everton's history. Starts off with you beating Liverpool in the charity shield. They've lost Souness, who at the time was a huge player for them. <laughs> Did you look at that loss at Everton as further evidence that Liverpool were there to be taken that season?
1: Um, look, no, the, the thing is, you know, <laughs> Liverpool always had this knack of replacing one player with two players. Um, I'm not quite sure, but I think it was Mulby and McMahon that come in for Sooners. So losing one player and buying two players. And uh, we all knew how good Steve McMahon was and what a big loss he was to Everton Football Club when he left to go to Villa. I don't think we realised how good Jan Molby was going to be. You know, for somebody who didn't, who lacked, you know, quite considerably a lot of pace, made up with it by being two-footed and can do whatever he wants with the ball. You know, I don't think we were thinking that it was a demised Liverpool side without Sooners, uh, because we knew how good they were actually replacing big stars, you know, Keegan, Dalgleish, you know, Phil Neal, and then got Steve (laughs) Nichol. Yeah, you know, and that's a hard choice for me. Which is the better player, Phil Neal or Stevie Nick? I think for somebody who's played four hundred and odd games for a club that hasn't been sort of injured, in Phil Neal, you've got to just edge it to him. But I thought Stevie Nick was a fantastic player. So you know, you know, you've got them. You know, they always had this knack of replacing good players with better players. That's something that we never did.
0: Still to come.
1: But I, I should have left. I should have left. There was a, a sniff of somebody in France wanted me. I should have pushed that issue. I should have pushed it to go. But I was a proud man and wanted to fight for my place at Everton. Uh, I still had a year to have my contract to go uh, and I wanted to get another contract.
0: A strange start in the league. Well, a bad start. You lose your first two games, including a 4-1 home defeat to Spurs. But yeah. October 84, there's They this... had four
1: chances. They had four chances, by the way. Right. We dominated that game and lost the game 4-1. And we, you come in after the game and thinking, how the hell have we lost that game? And I think Clive Allen was on form that day. And then obviously going to West Brom, losing that was a big disappointment. And you do wonder then when you've got Chelsea, first, first game on a Friday night, live on TV as well, that, oh, no, this could be, uh, you know, is this the the fall from grace after winning the FA Cup? You, you just don't want it to happen. But Kev Richardson pulled something out of the bag and, you know, we ended up winning the game 1-0.
0: You've got the likes of Paul Bracewell who've come in over the summer. Um, you lose Adrian Heath to a long-term injury, but Andy Gray steps in and finds the form of his life that season. Mm. There's a week where you beat Liverpool at Anfield, that famous game. A week later, you destroy United five nil at Goodison. You beat them in the League Cup three days later, and at that point, as you guys edged to, towards that eighty-five title, you're, you're thinking not just that you're gonna win the title that year, but you're thinking how is how is any team gonna stop this Everton team for the rest of this yeah. decade? It was that good.
1: It was it was like a machine just running. Yeah, just getting topped up. I think everything about it was right, our training, um, the way we trained, that when we did train, because of the amount of games you had, you don't really train that much. But when we did train, how much we actually put into it, the competitiveness in it, and the willingness to want to train. You know, we didn't really want days off. We wanted to come in and we wanted to train, even if it only be for half an hour, to do something. And that that was just the way that we were, the way that we were brought, brought up, I suppose. And the way that it was inbreded into us from the, the staff as well, How would write the way down to the likes of McEaton and that.
0: You won the European Cup Winners' Cup, but on the way to that final in Rotterdam, the, the second leg at Goodison when you beat Bayern 3-1, was that the standout performance from that era?
1: I think it had to be to actually win the game. We had to put in some sort of performance because they were a good side, a very good side. We knew that we had a better chance of winning it, obviously, if we beat them. Yeah, it was it was just one of them. Like I say, we were on a roll and it was it's hard to stop anybody when you're on a roll because when you're going out there thinking that you're gonna win it, but you're not quite sure by how many. Um, I wouldn't say that you were going out into the, the Bayern Munich game thinking that, but there was a lot of games you would go into thinking you know you were gonna win it, but you weren't quite sure what the score line was and who was gonna score. Because that was a good thing, is we we did have a a few people chipping in with goals. You know, you got Kevin Sheedy one side, Trevor Stephen the other, Sharpie, Adrian when he played and and obviously Andy Gray, uh, Derek Mantfield picking up over into double figures. So Gary Stevens would chip in with a few. I think the only people that didn't was me and Pat Reedy now and again. I think Reedy was around about five or six a year, same as Brace. Uh, same as you know, Kev Sheedy would be into double figures and Trevor Stephen would be as well. So you know if you've got like sort of four players getting into double figures. <laughs> You're going somewhere.
0: The European Cup winners' cup run, did that cost you the treble or was it simply a one off game, the the red card in a way galvanizing United?
1: Yeah, I think they dug a little bit deeper. Um I think they had to. Frank Staple moving to centre back, who had a tremendous game. I don't think it was one same game too far. It was just like I was saying like most of the times you need luck. And if you look at the game, we dominated it absolutely dominate, even when we're 11 v 11. But at the end of the day, you've got to have that little bit of luck and they had the luck on the day uh, and a little bit of genius from from Norman because he was one of them players that could produce something like that.
0: Obviously, the Heisel tragedy happens. That costs you the chance to compete in the European Cup. Many people, myself among them, do think that, you know, not only would you have won the European Cup, that team probably had more than one European Cup in it. Um, Hmm. let's talk about 85-86 because you should have won three consecutive league titles. And there seemed to be a change that team in, well, Andy Gray left to make way for uh, Gary Lineker, who goes on to have a sensational single season at Everton, hits 40 goals that year. But it seemed to come at some cost to, to to the team as a whole. I remember an interview with Kevin Sheedy, I think, after Gary Lineker had left, where he put forward the opinion that maybe the midfield had been sidelined as you guys started to rely a bit more on Lineker's pace. Is that a reasonable assessment?
1: Well, believe it or not, yeah. I, I think that, you know, we played a lot more longer balls from the back to the front or over the front than when we had Andy and Sharpie up front. You would have thought we would have played more longer balls with them two in the game. But with his extra pace and teams trying to learn off us and squeezing, there was a lot of space behind. So he used to knock balls into channels and over the top of the centre-backs and, you know, links would read it. You know, I had a great understanding with uh, with him uh, as in if there was a free kick, I'd look at him and he'd just sort of give a little bit of a nod and I'd just put it over the top for him into the way that he was running. He made my bad balls into good balls. You no, know, we played a lot more direct, I feel. That's definitely. and. By doing that, you know, the midfield lose out on the goals because they can't get there as quick. We didn't have the quickest of midfield players anyway, but when you've got a a lightning-quick striker and the ball's over the top, then maybe there's only likes of Trevor or Sharpie that are going to be up there with him that might be able to get on the end of things. So all of a sudden, you're losing that goal-scoring from midfield, which would be interesting. I've never really looked at the goal-scorers in that year from midfield, how many they got we were so close we were only one game away from winning the league oxford oxford away and gary Linuska missed a hatful there of chances and obviously took the wrong boots yeah just the one game well two we were two games off the double
0: 86 87 almost a forgotten team compared to 85 but there is a huge injury crisis at the club at the start of the season a bunch of new arrivals including a man who becomes your, I think, longest serving defensive partner, Dave Watson, comes in from Norwich. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that you guys win the title that year, given the amount of injuries you had, is, is remarkable. When
1: did, when did Dave come in then? What year?
0: Uh, August 86.
1: Right. Okay.
0: Uh-huh. What did he bring to the team? And what did he, what did he bring nothing, to your nothing game? Nothing to
1: start with. He <laughs> was pretty crap. <laughs> For the first six games, he was awful. He, I th- he got injured, and uh, it was most probably the best thing that ever happened to him. Uh, he got injured, and he, he was one of these centre-halves that if you had the number nine on your back, he'd follow you all over the place, and we didn't play that way. Uh, so he he sat in the stand, watched us, learned from us. Derek got his place back, and you know it wasn't before long that when Dave got in, he was first choice. I can't believe how quickly he picked up things, but that's a sign of a good player to roll your sleeves up like he did. Because he wasn't going, you know, first, he wasn't a million-pound player, but he was got down near to it by a penny. Because uh, Howard didn't want him to be the first million-pound centre-back or well, first million-pound player to be a centre-back, I think it was. Obviously, you got Trevor Francis in the past that had gone for a million pounds, but as a centre-back to go for a million quid. It was unheard of. So he wouldn't pay the million pounds, but he paid 999,099p, I think it was, uh, to secure the deal. And I think we realised after six months why he'd done it, because he turned out to be a great servant for the club in the end. But he was a tremendous player, most probably the hardest player I've ever played with.
0: You win another title comfortably in the end, and then Howard Kendall leaves. Were you surprised by his departure?
1: But The way the things were going, the way he could see things unravelling, you know, not just losing him, but losing the two right-hand sided players in Trevor Stephen and Gary Stephen. Yeah, it, that, that's hard to replace. And like I said before, you know, the, our biggest downfall was we weren't replacing great players with better players. You know, there were good players that were coming in, but they weren't better. And that was the hardest thing. It's a hard thing to do that when you've got, you know, top class players, internationals. And obviously the stakes were getting high if you did have to replace them as well. And I think that was one of our, our recruitment in them days wasn't the best for what we were going out the gate.
0: There's a period in 86, 87, when you're bringing in additional signings uh, like Snowden, Wayne Clark. I remember the Snowden signing, Jimmy Greaves felt that that signalled a power shift in favour of Everton because Liverpool had been in for Snowden as well. So up to a point, there were still some good, quality yeah, players coming Snot,
1: in. Snowden was most probably the better of all the buys. He was just very unfortunate. He picked up an hamstring injury a few years later. But most probably denied him an England place. He tore his hamstring and needed surgery and everything. Never really healed properly. I think he got infected a few times. Um, it was just, it was horrible, absolutely horrible. i would never heard of anybody having operations on hamstrings in my life before, and I felt for him because you could all see he had the potential. He was a great lad, um, great passer of the ball, great pace. I think he was finding it hard as a midfield player at Everton, and then he he shifted to right back he really didn't look out of place as a right-back. So replacing Gary Stevens there, he had the pace. I think he was a better passer of the ball than Gary. He was most probably over a shorter period uh, of space, a lot quicker than Gary, but Gary over a length distance was unbelievable. He was a, he was, he was a fantastic pace and energy, that he had stamina. But he looked as if we got a replacement for Gary and things were looking good. We weren't quite sure. I don't think we we're quite sure which position Ian Snodden it was really well. At one stage, we actually thought we bought the wrong Snowden. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, look, the bigger thing for for the likes of them two players that you mentioned, Wayne Clark and Ian Snowden, they both blended in brilliantly with the team. And the one surprise for me was Wayne, the way that he blended in with the team, how he reacted or connected with the players as well, because we'd heard that he wasn't one of these lads that liked to socialise uh, and be part of the team. And how wrong we were. If we made him that way, I'm not quite sure. But he, he he proved to be a great asset as well. Great finisher.
0: The Colin Harvey appointment made complete sense in that. At the time, you're the best team in the country. It's a, a smooth succession, much like the, uh, the boot room appointing from within. You knew him well. Did you expect the success to continue?
1: If you look back and think Colin was completely different from Howard. And I think that's how it worked because they were different uh, in the way that their outlook on everything, maybe. And it didn't surprise me that it didn't. Um, and sometimes you've got to look at maybe your staffing. Uh, did you have the right staffing around you? Because that's one thing that Howard got right in the end by bringing Colin in. But also, you know, Colin as a as a manager, it, I think it just proves it's completely different being a coach than a manager. And Colin was so reserved in himself in sometimes, you know, as in approachable. You know, he wasn't the best communicator in the world. And I think that's what he found hard in his difference in moving up from a coach to manager, is the communication between the players had to be a lot different, obviously, than it was when you were a coach. You weren't a go-between anymore. You were the leader. And obviously, he did things a lot differently than, than Howard did. He didn't the first year. It wasn't until the second year that he got he was in charge that he actually sort of trained, you know, the preseason and and different things like that.
0: There's a a couple of things that stand out for me from the 87-88 season. First of all, it's almost as if the new team that Liverpool put out that season, which was a very untypical Liverpool team, that it was almost the ultimate compliment to Everton. It was as if they were saying, well, this is what we have to do to take these guys on. And then there are two games involving Everton. The first one, by then the league's gone. It's a televised game, January 88. You beat Forest 1-0. Wayne Clark scores, but the Everton performance that day was superb. And anyone watching that that day would have thought, well, they're still a force. You can't discount these guys. Yeah. There's, there's still something there. But then there's the League Cup semi-final against Arsenal where you lose home and away. And it was almost in that game as if you were passing on the baton to an Arsenal team who were like the Everton team of three or four years earlier. Lots of local kids with a bit of experience. Right. I don't think
1: I played it. I don't think I played in the replay, did
0: I? It was a two-legged I semi-final.
1: I don't even know if I played in the semi-final. I remember. I I think I got injured against Sheffield Wednesday about a month or two before. I don't think I was part of that. That was more or less the end of my career. Near enough, even though I was still there for a few years. I I remember that because Dave Roadcastle tore back van out of shreds. I've never seen that before, and I have seen uh, the lad Adams dominate Graham Sharp from start to finish. And I'm thinking, who's this kid coming through? That was a, I think that was a Goodison actually, that game where he dominated Sharpie. He, he was, you know, brave. And I, you know, Sharpie dominated centre forwards, centre halves, you know, and quality centre halves. You know, Kevin Moran and Paul McGrath, they, they couldn't handle him. You know, Alan Hansen, Mark Lawrenson. them type. And then all of a sudden, there's this young upstart coming through, and uh, he. he he looked, a, he looked a man even though he was maybe only 19 at the time, 18, 19, 20. Yeah, they, they looked as if they were going to be a side to reckon with for years to come, you know.
0: You mention your injury there and I've got a, a bunch of notes here on your injury because there's one thing that I found very curious about your Everton career which was the way it ended because I thought you were an outstanding centre-half and not not necessarily a typical British centre-half. You look like one of the few British centre-halves who could also play the sweeper role at that time. You had the pace, mm-hmm. but the reading, your your reading of the game was outstanding. But then you mentioned this injury, and talking to players from you know former professionals, it's so common to hear that their careers were ended by misdiagnosed injuries. Your mm-hmm. one doesn't happen overnight. It drags on for a few years. Tell us what happened.
1: Uh, well, I picked up this injury at Sheffield Wednesday. I, I just felt something pop in my groin area. And I, and I mean pop, but go back in. Uh, so I've gone on the sidelines and I think, oh, it's all right now. Uh, I literally get on the pitch. I'm running fine. Still feel a little bit sort of weary there. And I think the corner comes across and, back, and pop again, goes. So I realised that this, I can't go on. I don't know how many subs there was then, but I actually stayed on till half time. It was only about five minutes till half time, like that. So I stayed on the played on the left wing, really. And I think Sheeds moved to left back, <laughs> which <laughs> sounds quite funny now. <laughs> um, and then I think Pat moved to centre back and I just sort of strolled around trying to do as much damage as I could in the, the littlest time that I had. And then I got in, but, yeah, they just just thought it was like a, a ruptured groin or something um and there was this new theory out then stretch it stretch it out stretch it out so for the next eight weeks that's what i did stretch 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 never played got into a bit of running but as soon as i tried to do that explosive thing again pop it'd go and that happened two or three times so if you can imagine that's every time two months that's six months just over six months with me not kicking a ball for everton football club and then realizing that uh, I go down a shore the final time and it goes again on me the Lillishaw physios turn round and said now that's not a ruptured groin that's something different it's a hernia go and get it seen to so I got in the phone to our doctor and to be fair the doctor got me an appointment the next morning down in Harley Street with a a doctor called Dr Gilmore uh, I think he was renowned for finding something wrong with you that nobody knew existed but it did the trick for me he found a hernia there he said it was a hernia uh, he did that old trick where he sticks a finger into your groin area and tells you to cough, you know, like like you see when you're joining the army or you're in the, going to prison. But he was the only person that actually did it to me when I was lying down on the couch. And I, The only way that I can explain it is that I jumped up and more or less grabbed the ceiling like a cat with two hands and my feet. So when I landed, he, he proceeded, he took the finger out and said, uh, I'll just do it one more time. I said, you won't. <laughs> I said, you will not touch me there again. And he, uh, he said, "Yeah, you've got a hernia. I'll do it tomorrow morning straight away." So I stayed down in London for a week and had the hernia, and uh, that was it really. But that was took me ten months, which, if it was detected straight away, was going to be six weeks.
0: You're still relatively young, though, at this point. I
1: mean, this is I'm 28. Well, if you look at my career for Everton, is that most of my appearances were before the age of 28. So, of the 492 appearances, I think you're going to find something like 400 of them, 380, before the age of 28. This this was a massive setback because I lost a bit of pace from that 10 months. I think the fitness level had changed because of the back pass rule. You could, all of a sudden couldn't pass it back to the keeper. He could pick it up, roll it back out. So it was more continuous, the game. So the fitness levels were a little bit different. And I think the other difference for me was that I actually come back round about January against Sunday. Maybe i come back a little bit too soon. I don't think the club were going too well. I think they were desperate for me to get back, which was nice. So when you felt wanted, you want to give it a go, don't you? You want to, but you, you knew straight away that you weren't the same player as what you sort of left the pitch ten months before. I knew that, and I was uh, so disappointed in that. And the diagnosis, really, that it took so long. You know, when you read about it years before, that's what happened to Mark Higgins. He had a hernia. That's why he finished. Um, Gary Stanley, when he was at the club, that's what happened with him, and that was at the end of his sort of tenor at Everton because of hernia injuries, Mick Pedgick. and these these were so undetectable them days, whereas, you know, round about that time, I think it was becoming common knowledge that I think Ozzy Ardila's had it, and he had the, the quickest recovery. I think his was four weeks. But, you know, the, obviously the heavier you are, the more longer it most probably takes you. He was very, very light. He was more like a jockey, wasn't he, than a, a footballer, Ozzy <laughs> But, you know, I had that same injury and it 10 months. That was just so disappointing for me that I'd missed 10 months of football and come back a different type of player.
0: And, and you'd been trying various different tweaks to your training to try and recover that pace, hadn't you?
1: Yeah, I'd done everything. You know, I then worked on my fitness because obviously I'd been out that long, You know, which wasn't my forte, doing long distance, 12-minute, 15, 20-minute runs. But every morning I used to do one before we trained. As in sprinting, I just knew that I I wasn't going to get that back. I just knew that I could not get what I had before because I just had an automatic switch that would go and bang, I'm there. Uh, That bang, I'm there wasn't there anymore.
0: But also you were known for your reading of the game. Was there no way that you could have just built yourself?
1: Yeah, Well, you have to adjust for that. You know, you have to adjust your game. We were still squeezing. I remember one game we played against Liverpool actually uh the, the the 4-4 and uh before the game Howard's pulled me Dave Watson and uh Martin Keown over he says I'm gonna with a three-man defense and I'm thinking wow yeah quite like that idea now three man in defense I'll play as a sweeper like I've done for Wales all this time I'm sure Howard would have seen me playing for Wales even though he never went the games he would have known that I played sweeper for Wales and uh he turned around and played me as a a man market on Peter Barsley, which I'd never done in my life before. I thought it was a massive mistake by Howard. I thought, you know, the best man market at the football club uh, then uh, was two people in Dave Watson and uh, Martin Keogh. And I would just sweep up behind them. Um, but no, Howard decided to go that way. He wanted to change it in their replay, by the way. I
0: I'd want to finish on that because I, wa- I want to ask you about that. just Just before we get to that, and... You know, I'll wind this down because you've been very generous with your time. You, you've you've touched on the fact that by 28, 29, as a top player, you're no longer at the peak of your powers. This injury has cost you, but yeah. you're still at the club. For two or three years after that, Everton reached the 89 Merseyside final. Difficult situation for Everton. Same city, your own club and fans and you, the players, would have been affected by the tragedy too, but all the neutrals and rooting for Liverpool. Did you go into that final thinking that if Everton won it might usher
1: in a new trophy winning period? Um, well you never think it's gonna end. <laughs> right. Anyway, I, I think we knew that the quality of players that were coming in weren't you know, the players that were still there weren't as good as what we were losing. You know, Neil McDonald coming in, Stuart McCall coming in, Tony Cotty, even though he was a good goal scorer, was he better than what we'd had. But they weren't instigating as much as what maybe we wanted them to. There was a little bit of a shift in the in the football world, even though they were getting paid better money. You know, all of a sudden there was 15% on the mortgage rates. They were getting bigger mortgages. Uh, there was 60% tax. You know, so they were limited to what they could do. You know, all their money was going on the houses, I think. So they, did, they had no time for, for, like, shall I say, uh, socialising like we did to bond. So it 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 was you could see it wasn't the same. It didn't have the same feel, if you know what I mean, with the players that were there, uh, that were coming in. I could sense it, you know, that it was it was just turning a little bit and not not good. And I I think, you know, like I said, you know, before that, I think the recruitment was pretty poor towards the end of the 80s. The players that were coming in weren't, you know, Peter Reid got replaced by Stuart McCall. Peter Reid went on and played for quite a number of years at uh, QPR, S- Southampton, Man City.
0: Had the problem there with Peter Reid being that when Colin Harvey took over, he made Peter Reid play a coach. Did that have some kind of impact?
1: No, Ooh. never did anything. I think it was a softener to sort of say, you're not playing as much. You won't be playing as much. That, that was my personal feeling about it all. Uh, and I think it was more or less a little bit of a nudge that you... You know, once it in one way. Uh, but yeah, I think he did the same with Paul Power. I think Paul Power become a coach at the club for a little while. It's just a little bit odd. That era uh, was a little bit odd, you know, with, like I say, recruitment in the staff wise and obviously the, the recruitment, especially in the players that I thought was, you know, wasn't as good as what it was before. I know it's hard to replace really good players, but that's a task you got as a manager and as a scouting network as well.
0: Howard Kendall returns in 1990. How, how do you think the situation in 1990, late 90, when Howard Kendall returns, how would you compare it to when he first arrived as manager in 81? Where, where was the club in late 90?
1: I think very similar to what he was when he first come in, in the 80s. That You know, he needed to rebuild. And how was he going to do that? I, th- I think he had the utter faith in doing that and that he could do it. But I actually thought it would take him longer. You know, I did say that to him one day on the coach coming home that, you know that he'll change it. You and know, so it's going to take you. A, it's going to take you a good two years. But you know, he he had faith in himself and wanted the challenge as well. You know, coming back to the team that he loved. You know, but it wasn't to be, like I said.
0: The the eighty five team. Do you think that in eighty five eighty six, perhaps just going back to that season briefly, that some of the motivation. Was maybe diminished by the fact that you couldn't go on to prove that you were the best in Europe. It was because your form. I mean, you should have won the league that year. Well, but that,
1: that, that was that was proven by the players leaving. You know, the you know you, to lose that right hand side. Would you have lost that if you were playing European football? No, they would have stayed at Everton Football Club. They went to Rangers to play European Cup football, not to play for Rangers. You know, not at that age. At thirty years of age, you might go to Rangers and play for Rangers. The only reason you'd go at 26 is if you weren't good enough for a Premier League side, you know. But no, these um, these players wouldn't have gone. I'm sure they wouldn't have gone and 100% sure they wouldn't have gone because we would have been able to afford to keep them because we were bringing in extra revenue from the European Cup anyway. So, uh, you know, that's another debate for me if we would have won it or not, because like I say, things can go sour very, very quickly, you know, you can have injuries, you can have bookings, you can have sending offs, just change games, especially in the European Cup in them days, because European Cup was a cup; Uh, it wasn't a league like it is now. And you can afford to lose games. You couldn't afford to lose an away game at somewhere like Kiev, or you know, Sofia. You couldn't go anywhere like that into these Eastern Bloc countries and afford to lose a game by one or two, especially by two goals, because these were you know formidable European sides.
0: We're gonna finish with that. Well, the game after the 4 4 at Everton, uh, between Everton and Liverpool. Mm-hmm. And so there's been the 4 4 draw at Goodison. Yeah. An incredible game. Kenny Dalglish's last game as Liverpool manager. Both clubs just so far away from what they were in the mid 80s when, you know, the two clubs were arguably, uh, possibly the two best teams in Europe. Mm. And also, it almost completes, as I say, I thought you were one of the best centre-halves in Europe through the 80s, but it was it was sad just as someone watching you to, to see the, the, the very quiet and unusual end that your career had when you were still relatively young. Howard Kendall gives you the opportunity to play as sweeper and you refuse. How do you feel about that?
1: I should have done what the manager asked, really, to be fair. I, I should have played sweeper, but I, I felt so bloody... Annoyed that I wasn't sweeping in the first game, I thought, "Well, I'm I'm going a bit stubborn now, and that's what I can be sometimes." Yeah, and I went against what the manager wanted. Really, I don't, I don't look back at it and thinking because we actually won the game. If we would have lost the game, I would have regretted it, I suppose. But we won the game, we won the game one 0 with a Dave Watson header or finish. And um, yeah, it's just look. It's always sad when you leave a club that you love. Uh, maybe you, I, I should have left that football club six months earlier uh, before Howard come to the football club. I think it was the start of the season. I think we played Leeds where Neff sat on the bench, or sat on the post. I right. wasn't playing. I was I was subbed that day. And I'd had a little bit of a fallout with Colin in pre-season over a bonus situation. And, you know, when you think you're losing that little bit of a power as a captain, not, no, no, not a power as a captain, but you weren't getting anywhere as being the captain. Uh, I felt as if I wasn't being listened to and I realised that you know that there were players coming in that are doing most probably a better job than me maybe they weren't quite ready for Everton Football Club at that time that was Martin Keon by the way that I mean that you know even though he turned out to be a good player I think he wasn't quite ready for what he was expecting at Everton and, and would have been a great player for Everton Football Club because he was a good player um hard as nails quick and got better and better on the ball as he got older but I should have left. I should have left. There was a, a sniff of somebody in France wanted me. I should have pushed that issue. I should have pushed it to go. But I was a proud man and wanted to fight for my place at Everton. Uh, I still had a year to have my contract to go uh, and I wanted to get another contract.
0: Did the fans, lastly, did the fans know what was going on, why you changed as a player? How much of that was known? Because to me...
1: You don't know, do you? Because it's not the same. As today, you'd find out a little bit more, wouldn't you? Most probably wouldn't know. It wouldn't happen now with the technology they've got. It's so more advanced now than 30 years ago. But uh, they wouldn't know because obviously the press didn't know things as much as they do now. Social media leaks a lot. I don't think anything's a secret nowadays in in football. You know, the fans seem to know who's being bought before the club do. Um, so you, you know, it's 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 really completely different than uh, what it was back in the day. I mean, I'm I'm reading the book at the moment, Dave Prentice's book. Oh, what's it called now? I'm reading. I'm in the middle of reading <laughs> it, and it, you know, be, with him being a reporter from the the Pearl Echo, and him telling you what it was like trying to get stories. But the way that he got stories was actually going in, being with the players, being with the manager for half an hour every morning instead of, you know, picking things up off social media. uh, It's a completely different way of being a journalist these days than it is, you know, back then. I think you get more to the truth back then than you would do now.
0: Kevin, I appreciate your time. That's brilliant. All right, mate. Thank you to Kevin, another guest, very generous with his time, someone who won so much in the game, captained his country, and there was nothing big time about dealing with him. I particularly enjoyed his lighthearted remark about Andy Gray not being a regular at Everton. And I have to say, despite Gray making a massive contribution to that Everton success story, I think Everton's former number four has a point. Appreciate you guys listening. Do please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you download it from and uh, share and retweet, repost, etc. Social media links. Reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially critical, as I said last week. In fact, they are all important, particularly to one-man shows like this. This show doesn't have the resources of the bigger shows. If you enjoy the podcast, please do leave a good rating and review. It will increase this show's visibility in the Apple Podcast, store and help me to keep the show going the podcast can be followed on both twitter and instagram at shorts were short and facebook.com forward slash shorts short if you want to join the group page please do all my work can be found at daniel appreciate your time the artwork is by tom hadfield the music is 80 synth pop by toto cyberspace i've been daniel where is tyson this has been when shorts were short If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it.